0: This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Isaac Dover. On Tuesday night in Prince William County, Virginia, Democrats celebrated.
1: All we do is win, 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 no matter what!
0: For the first time in a generation, they have complete control of the state government. Every executive office, both Senate seats, and now both chambers of the state legislature, all controlled by Democrats. I was there in Prince William County on election night, It's about an hour's drive south of D.C. at the edge between the blue northern suburbs and the red rural south. Here's Hala Ayala, one of the area's re-elected delegates. My district was one of the hardest districts on on this side of Virginia, the northern side of Virginia. And for the people to elect me back into office, I am so humbled and grateful. Ayala's race, and the races of other Democrats celebrating on Tuesday, get an unusual amount of national attention. The state votes in off years, so people like me look to it to understand where the country is in the years before and after a presidential race. And that fact isn't lost on Ayala. I'm ecstatic. We did it. Virginia spoke. We, we sent a tsunami message to 1600 Penn. DNC chair Tom Perez was also at the election night party, making the case that Virginia was a prelude to 2020.
1: When you fight for what people care about, that's how we win elections, here in Virginia and across the country. We are a 50-state party again. We're organizing everywhere. We're winning everywhere. Thank you, Virginia.
0: Today on Radio Atlantic, we're going to talk about Tuesday's results with another national figure at that event. Virginia Senator Tim Kaine. You'll, of course, remember Kaine as Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016, but he's also a former DNC chair and a 25-year veteran of Virginia politics, from Richmond mayor to lieutenant governor to governor to now a U.S. senator. The morning after the election, we caught up with him in his office on Capitol Hill. Looking at the results from the night before, he was a very happy man, feeling cautiously optimistic that the way his state voted means that next November will look better for Democrats than his own experience did in 2016. Take a listen. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine, thanks for joining us here on Radio
1: Atlantic. You bet. Isaac, glad to be with you.
0: So we were there last night. It was a pretty excited mood for Democrats. Right. What, as you're taking this in, you've been in Virginia politics a long time. Yeah. How does it process for you?
1: Um, it, it was amazing. I mean, this this was the last step of a, essentially a 20-year effort to assemble a big picture. It was like the jigsaw puzzle. We, When I got into state politics after eight years as a nonpartisan local official in 2000, we had nothing. I mean, we absolutely had nothing. No statewides, uh, deep minorities in our congressional delegation, state legislature, electoral votes. We hadn't had them since 1964. And now progressively, okay, we could win a governor's race, but oh, well, you can't win a senator. Okay, we won a senator. You can't win electoral votes. We did. Can't win take the majority in Congress. We did. This was the last piece, taking the majority in the two state houses, which because of the redistricting that was done by Republicans in 2011, they had a trifecta, both houses. I'm sorry, one house um, and a a governor. Um, These were seats that they drew. And so last night, um, it was an amazing... Finish to a 20-year effort where we've gone from nothing to now the Democrats basically have all the majorities the key levers of power That's been for a couple of reasons. It's been because when we've had the chance to govern We've done well and Virginians like hey, I like that But it's also you you can't look at last night without just seeing this massive repudiation of President Trump after 2016 where we won Virginia the 17 results in our state races gubernatorial and house were great our 18 results, my re election, then flipping three House seats from red to blue. They'd been red for most of the last 50 years. That was great. Last night continues it. And it was a massive repudiation of, of this president. It seems to me like uh, the last four election
0: nights for you have uh, been a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. 2016, obviously, yeah. you were very involved in that one. Yeah. Uh, that did not go the way you wanted right. it to. Although it
1: was funny, I mean, we knew very early we were going to win Virginia, and we were going to win <laughs> Virginia by more than Obama did in 2012. I've spent my whole life trying to get Virginia to catch up, Right. so the fact that Virginia would be in such great shape, I did think after we knew we'd win Virginia, we're probably going to win this race, but while we were moving ahead, <laughs> others weren't necessarily standing still. So.
0: Yeah, it was good Virginia news for you, yeah. but not good the rest yeah, of the news, right, right. Uh, and uh, N16 obviously ends in a, a long night uh, that didn't go the way you wanted it to a very rough night and then processing it and then 2017 you have races that do go the way you want them to in virginia 2018 like you said you win re-election in a race that when it was getting started people thought was going to be actually much more competitive right yeah Uh,
1: they were going to try to make an example out of me because i've been on the ticket yeah
0: uh and that didn't occur and you won and you won by by I don't know, the summer of 2018, right. people were stopping paying
1: attention yeah. to you. And room. we were able to flip the focus of our race to flipping house seats. Right. And, and we, you know, three dynamic women, two of whom were first-time candidates, elected in districts that had been read for most of the last 50 years. So 18 was a great night. But, But again, there was something about last night because it was sort of the last piece in this puzzle. And our legislature has been blocking us in Virginia for doing meaningful things on gun safety, even after suffering through Virginia Tech and Virginia Beach and so much gun violence, Been blocking raising the minimum wage, blocking the Equal Rights Amendment, tried so hard to block us from expanding Medicaid with Republicans in control disenfranchising voters rather than making it easier for people to vote um had either house stayed in republican majority we wouldn't have been able to move forward on the things i've just mentioned but now with both houses in democratic hands and a democratic governor we have the ability to 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 do even more than we have done and respond to the concerns that people have and that's really sweet
0: does it make you think about the contrast to where you were on election night 2016
1: you know no it's funny i don't i I really get Virginia politics. I'm not an expert in anybody else's politics, you know, any other states Or or even national politics. I get Virginia politics. I get We are the single best turnaround project in the United States in the last 50 years And so the only the only thing that that I think is sort of relevant about it is hey Democrats You want a model you want to see how to do things? Virginia's got a good model for you. Um, and I feel really really proud of that. So Uh, I think less about 16 than I think about 20 and 22 and 24. I mean, I I think that there are things that we've done in Virginia, and it's this combination of we govern well and people trust us to govern. We recognize that Trump is the wrong person for this country and against our values. I say, look, we have a weird state seal in Virginia. It's a victorious woman standing atop a deposed tyrant. We hate tyrants. Our state was born out of opposition to tyranny. We still hate tyrants. We can see them coming a mile off and we reject them. And that's one of the reasons that Trump is so unpopular in Virginia, is that we've seen narcissistic, anti-science, bigoted bullies too often in our past. And we've decided to put away the childish things. We want something different. Um, That's the second feature. But then the third feature going forward is we do really, really well now in suburbs. That's been the Virginia story. When when Mark Warner was elected governor in 2001, he did unusually well in rural Virginia, running an 01 against a suburban Republican nominee. I had to run against a rural Virginia nominee in 2005, and it's like, I'm not going to clean up in rural Virginia against a rural opponent. I've got to figure out a way to make the suburbs really competitive for us, and and we did in 05, and won Prince William, and won Loudon, and pretty much everybody who's been winning statewide since, Jim Webb, Barack Obama, you know, uh, Mark Warner, Terry McAuliffe, Ralph Northam, has pursued this suburban strategy of investing heavily in the suburbs that are now 65% of the population is, is suburban. And we expanded our map last night. We, we, we'd been getting to Loudon and Prince William, but last night, you know, Chesterfield and Stafford. Uh, we're expanding the suburban map, and that's a lesson for Dems nationally.
0: Is it a lesson when in 2014 when Mark Warner was running for re election to the Senate? Uh, his race was surprisingly close, the very area, close, yeah. uh, and was sort of dismissed afterwards as a fluke. But I think in in reflection, mm-hmm. it looked like actually a premonition of what was coming yep. in 2016. Yep. Mm-hmm. Was Obviously, you, you don't like mm-hmm. that Donald Trump is the president. Mm-hmm. You tried to make that not happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nothing
1: he's done has surprised me. I, t- <laughs> I told people for 105 days this is exactly what would happen. So, But,
0: but is there a level of wake-up call that happened for the Democratic Party in rethinking yeah. how to do things that came because... sort of hit rock bottom as a party with Donald Trump getting re-elected. Well,
1: you know, I I don't think we hit rock bottom. And I think a danger for Dems, don't overcorrect. I mean, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Um, It's really hard to do that for a third term. Dems don't do that. It's hard to do that for a woman. It's hard to do that with Russia and the FBI putting their thumb on the scale against you. You don't have to turn everything over. Now, I will say... Though, uh, it, there was a wake up call because the consequences of Trump's election are so dramatic. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the picking an, a lesser qualified man over a qualified woman, it's not exactly the first time that that's happened in American life. Um, and I, I do worry a little bit. The party sh- should do a lot of things differently and capture energy and excitement in the way we have, but you don't have to turn everything topsy turvy. And I, I do worry a little bit about the party overcorrecting. I think Virginia you know it's not like we changed stuff in virginia we 14 was a tough year because it was the obama midterm and dems were having trouble in the obama midterm in virginia and elsewhere but we didn't turn everything topsy turvy we we have had a path that has led us to generally success and so one not always 2009 wasn't a good year for us we lost the governor's race then but we haven't lost the state race now in 10 years state or federal so we've got we have a path we're pursuing it young diverse problem-solvers Recognizing people's dissatisfaction with this president, you know when the most known American does not stand for the values that we think are Fundamentally American inclusion and equality and can do optimism. He's divisive and and kind of pessimistic then we got to take advantage of that uh, dissatisfaction, and that was a huge factor in the race.
0: Is it just uh, a mirror, perhaps, of what happened in two thousand ten and two thousand eleven in politics nationally, where uh, the Republicans were doing well, and then Obama was reelected in twenty twelve? Right. That, that was a that was a period where you were DNC chair. Yeah. You were thinking yeah. about things. Uh, it does seem like things are going well for Democrats uh, when it comes to elections in the last right. two years. But what is that?
1: Yeah, what could mean could, right? Like, could President Trump get reelected yeah. next year in the same way? Well, look, that's a fair question, and and so no complacency. I will say that the one difference that we're that we've really worked hard on in Virginia, and I hope nationally, you're seeing it too, is in the Obama election of 08 and even between '08 and 2012, the Democrats built themselves into a really good presidential popular election party. The Republicans, on the other hand, were working on, you know, local races and things like that because they realize they're not a good presidential popular election party. So they want to do well in local races. They want to get the electoral college advantage. I do think Dems have woken up to that. So what you saw in Virginia with not just state races, but look, when you have Prince William and Loudoun changing these suburban counties, fundamentally changing the direction of the boards of supervisors and school boards, diverse, progressive... That suggests that we're learning the lesson, and we're not just focusing on the presidency. We're focusing on building out the entire,
0: the entire team. There were a number of firsts in the elections uh, this week, uh, and, and we have the first Muslim state senator yeah. in Virginia, first Sikh, yeah. uh, Muslim woman, right, mm-hmm. first Sikh ele- local elected official in Virginia. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for... Uh, What the party is at this point if you were uh, if you could go back and talk to mayor-elect Tim Kaine Richmond in 1998 Mm -hmm. um, What would you say Mm -hmm. about where what would he think about where the party is right now?
1: He would he would say the party is uh, Where he dreamed it would be. I mean, I was the mayor of a city that's predominantly minority In 1998 it was majority minority and it was very unusual that I was the mayor of that city at that time but I was the mayor because you know, the, our minority community had the grace to extend to me. We trust you when the white majority never extended that grace to a minority candidate in the hundreds of years that was that preceded my time as mayor. Um, so I, I our party is a party where everybody's welcome at the table and nobody is pushed away from the table. Some ha, some. It, it causes them angst because they might see new faces around the table and they think they're losing something as a result. But what Virginians have learned is, wait a minute, we're not losing anything, we're gaining. Uh, In Prince William, where we were last night, the guy I beat in the Senate race last year patented this sort of, before Trump, this hard anti-immigrant Style of campaigning and he won some elections that way, but you know what the county saw the results of it and said That's not what we want and last night was a repudiation of it And and a statement of here's who we are as a commonwealth. Here's who we are as a party Here's who we should be as a country. You can come sit around the table We'll all be around the table to you took
0: special pleasure in announcing that that seat had flipped to a Democrat. Yeah, I Uh, (laughs) I did uh and you said in your speech that now, uh prince william is on, on the same page same paragraph in the same century uh yeah. as the voters as its citizens yeah uh i was talking to tom perez the dnc chair at mm-hmm. the party last night he said that nights like uh tuesday night give him faith in humanity again mm-hmm. where where is uh humanity where
1: is the country at this point yeah well it's a it's a challenging time i you, you you know you try to grapple with and understand the, the situation. Um, I, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the book of Job recently. Um, when Job was going through trials, he thought, I've been such a good person. So is it just all pointless? I'm going to suffer just pointlessly? And neighbor said, we thought that guy was a good person, but if he's suffering, he must have done something wrong. But the reader of the story knows it's neither of those things. The reader of the story is Job's being tested. And the test is, will he stay true to his values or not? You can look at U.S. history as a series of tests. We have a set of values. No person is above the law, the equality principle, free press, freedom of religious expression. And the question is, will we stay true to those principles when we're tested? And and Trump, in a very uh, open way, is challenging many of these principles. I'm going to hold myself above the law. I don't have to follow it. Um, I'm going to kick Muslims around rather than recognize, oh, I'm going to kick the press around. We're going through a test right now. And the question is, will we be true to our principles or will we abandon them? It's the same test that Job faced. And at the end of the book of Job, which is a wonderful piece of literature, you know, some believe it inerrant, but even if you are not a Bible believer, you would have to read Job and say, that is a beautiful piece of literature with a profound insight about psychology. He holds true to his principles through the test, and then what was lost to him is restored. I think this is the moment that our country's living in. And we've lived in moments like this before. So America, America's job. In there? I think America is being tested right now. We're going through a test, and we go through them. You know, Civil War and Civil Rights era, we go through tests. And the question is, are we going to hold? fast to the ideals of equality and no person above the law and free press and free freedom of religious expression or are we going to compromise on those things and i I believe like in the book of job when you hold fast to principles you can be tested but there can be a good outcome and i i am completely of the belief that the chapter we're living in now is going to have a positive outcome there's been pain and there's going to be more in my view but i think the outcome is going to be we held fast to our principles we're sadder but wiser, um, but we held fast to our principles, and we've continued to show the ability to move forward. Why am I such an optimist? Because I see what's happened in Virginia. Yeah, My father-in-law was elected 50 years ago to governor of Virginia, 50 years ago Monday, just two days ago. Your father-in-law, and, the former governor
0: of Virginia, yeah, who Lynn happens Wendell. that you married the daughter of a former governor and then became
1: later governor. Yeah, and, he, <laughs> and he was a Republican who ran on a pro-integration platform, right in the teeth of the segregationist Dixiecrats. And he got elected and he integrated the schools of Virginia and then he got frozen out of politics for the rest of his life. He's 96 years old now. He stuck to principle. And for a long time, he tried to run for the Senate in 1978 and finished third in a four-way Republican primary, the guy who built the modern Republican party, but he held fast to principle. And look where Virginia is now. First African-American governor, Doug Wilder, putting electoral votes behind Barack Obama in 0812. This dramatic political transformation. So when I look at where we are as a nation and, and what might happen, I have a pretty good analogous situation right here where we've stuck to principles that were important. And while there's been pain along the way, um, we are on an arc that I like, and I think the same thing's going to happen in the country. Is it going to be different when Trump's name is on the ballot next year? It will be different. Um, but Trump's name was on the ballot this year. Um, you know, when he went to Kentucky and said, look if if the if, if Bevan doesn't win, they're going to say it's on me. You can't let them do that to me. Trump's name was on the ballot in Kentucky. Trump's name was on the ballot but there's, I in mean, Virginia. But, but you're he, right, when he, he is, is the guy. So much of it is,
0: of how he operates is as a sort of cult of personality right. around politics. It's so much the cult attachment of, to cult him. Cult of one. Uh, right. and, uh, and it just seems like that will make a big difference yeah. in how things go. In the same way, but I think to a higher degree now, that it made a difference Barack Obama being on the ballot in yes. 2008 and 2012 versus yes. where Democrats were in 2010 and 14 right, right? so
1: Yeah I, no I think I mean and I Trump th- Trump has made it even more about him You so, have right. to assume it will and and I look I don't I don't say Dems are necessarily going to win in 2020 I think I think Trump could win I think that the race is the Dems race to lose but Trump could clearly win um and I you know I hope again the Dems learn the right lessons from 17 18 19 so, so, 16 wh- too learn the right lessons from 16, 17, 18, 19, and then apply them in 20. But uh, we, we should feel after last night, Kentucky and Virginia especially, we should feel that we've got momentum.
0: All right, we're going to step aside for a moment. After the break, Ken and I discuss impeachment, what its impact was on swing districts, what it will mean for 2020, and what his Republican colleagues in the Senate are really saying behind the scenes. Stay with us. What do you think the 2020 candidates, the Democrats, broadly should learn from what happened here? Well,
1: so, you know, I I would say... Trump's increasing unpopularity, not with his core base, but with independents and people who could decide to go another direction. There's a lot of voters out there that that we can get. I don't know, Trump got 44, 45% in 2016. Of that, 35% is rock solid, 46. Okay, so of that, 35% is rock solid. But there's 10 or 11 who are very much in play. Um, And so we need to to do that. We need to recognize that though, I, I think, too often, there's sort of an effort on the 10 or 11 that ignores uh, energizing our own people. And so I've always run campaigns with what I call the Venn diagram theory, that there's an overlap between things that Dems care deeply about and independents care deeply about. And you try to run the race in that overlap where people care deeply, not in the mushy middle Run on things that people people care deeply about, and and Dems and Independents care deeply about many of the same things. They they're climate science believers. They believe in equality, including LGBT equality. Run in the intersection where Dems and Independents care deeply about stuff. Um, so I think we need to do that, but and I think we need to avoid uh, on some positioning, you know, where we're pushing people away. Um, One way to read the results of last night is that. The impeachment
0: conversation so far has either helped Democrats or not
1: registered as a factor in a right. real way. Right. Right.
0: Is that the way you think things will hold?
1: Uh- yeah, that's a really good question. We certainly saw as we were because I did 40 events for 60 candidates, I think, and we were talking to them about their polling. The, the, our legislative candidates' polling in September, pre-impeachment inquiry, and then late October, Trump's numbers went down. So the impeachment inquiry wasn't hurting them with the public. It was hurting Trump with the public. Now, did it increase Republican turnout? You know, sometimes your numbers can go down, but it can energize people. We'll have to do a little more reading of the tea leaves to figure that out. But I think you can very safely say that the impeachment inquiry did not hurt uh, Democrats in swing districts in a battleground state like Virginia. Didn't I mean, Because it, you won the races. I mean, there, yeah. that, that's in the, what in it the swing districts. Yeah. I'm not talking about the blue districts. Right. And I'm not talking about the red. But in the swing ones, where we had to pick up the seats to win, Trump's numbers went down in the last month. Um, and that was in, could be impeachment. It could be abandoning the Kurds. It could be, you know, the revelation of the campaign to sack this career ambassador i mean it could be a million things but the impeachment inquiry did not hurt dems and and arguably i think probably it helped us a little let me ask you you have good relationships with a lot of your colleagues in the senate a lot yes. of your republican colleagues i am an institutionalist
0: here. we <laughs> ought to be working across the aisle together there are a lot of people who talk often about how Republican senators know that there's an issue here that yeah. is that they are uncomfortable with mm-hmm. they are tr- currently trying to thread Something along the lines of the what Trump did with Ukraine was bad, but not impeachable right, right. Uh, Jeff flake your former colleague from Arizona had a an op-ed a, a few weeks ago that said if there were a secret ballot Yeah, two 30 is uh, right yeah. uh, two-thirds would vote to get rid of uh, Of President Trump uh, and I think he said 20 or 30 Republicans. Yeah, right is that is that a, a a fair assessment of where things are? I,
1: I think so I have been saying something very similar to what flake had been saying for some time Which is that two-thirds of Republican senators now one-third think Trump is fantastic They sincerely believe that okay, but two-thirds are deeply worried about him his character his judgment his emotional volatility the, his ethics the kind of people he has around him what how he acts and what he says they're really worried about it, but They're they're deeply worried about the Trump voter, turning on them and so they would probably many of them be glad to have mike pence as president rather than president trump pence was a congressman he's kind of one of them he's not going to tweet out negative stuff about him they know trump has no loyalty to them so but but they cannot yet see a path um, to even stand up and rebuke President Trump in their words without making the Trump voter mad, and the the Trump voter is now the GOP voter. They they uh, there is there is essential complete overlap in those two categories. Trump has has burrowed into and now completely occupies the GOP. I wonder
0: how it is for you talking with your colleagues and knowing that that's where their minds are, but not where their public statements are, because it leads to. Among reporters, yeah. uh, a level of cynicism mm-hmm. when, uh, without betraying any specific off the record conversations yeah. that I have had, mm-hmm. uh, when off the record
1: conversations with uh, people do not match up to yeah. their public statements. So, you, you've asked a really interesting question How does it make me feel when there's a mismatch? It makes me feel better than if they all sincerely believe Trump was great. Because if there's a mismatch between what I know they believe and what they're saying, that's an opportunity. If, if they all thought Trump is doing exactly what we think the President of the United States should do, I'd be depressed. But when a big chunk of them, they don't believe that's what the President should do. And they're increasingly, you know, boy, on the situation with the Kurds. When Senator McConnell writes a Washington Post op-ed saying the President made a big mistake, that's not just about the Kurds. That's him going public in the Post distancing himself from the president when the president had to reverse field on bringing the g7 to Doral, he didn't do that because of the media or the democrats he did it because the republicans said are you kidding this is ridiculous have you heard and of- so there's they're starting to be a willingness and and i'll tell you isaac for us on the democratic side who do have good relations on the other side our chore is not to convince anybody what to think our chore is to give them a path to say what they already think what we know they already think
0: do the election results of this week inform that, do you think, for them? Have you heard from any so. of your Republicans? Not colleagues? yet.
1: Not yet. I mean, no, not, not yet. It's still too soon having this conversation with you. But it does suggest, look, Trump will drag you down, you know? I mean, Trump is, is, is posing danger to important values of the country, but he also could destroy the GOP. Um, and, and they have to grapple with do they want that to happen. There is a price to loyalty, and loyalty is damage to a country we love, but loyalty is also damage to a party that many of these people have spent their whole lives working to promote. What if there's a shutdown in the middle of all of this? Yeah. Well, I I don't think there's going to be, and you know I kind of. It get seems to the, like
0: the right bet over the last few years in American government is when yeah. things can get ridiculous.
1: They will. They will right. right? Here's, it, here's it's that it's that principle. Of well, I jump <laughs> I jump to a punchline and then work backwards, and some of the some of the steps in my math I can't show you, but I can jump <laughs> to the end point, which is the the shutdown last year was bad for Trump and for the Republicans, and they know it. And we know it, and most importantly, they know that we know it. So it's not going to be good for them going into a big election year, and they know that. And so that means I believe we're going to get to a good path. Now, I want to get to appropriations and omnibus, and you know I, you, hear more oh, you people, mean like the work of government. Yeah, the you real work to, of government, okay. and you're hearing people <laughs> talk about continuing resolutions. I, I'm not worried about shutdown so much as I'm worried about you know kind of slack budgetary practices that don't really look in the Continuing resolutions is like driving looking in the rearview mirror I want to drive looking in the windshield and drive forward rather than just do what I did last year So there's some danger of that I think but I don't think we're gonna get into the shutdown space
0: we were talking about Politically what you think the election results mean for going forward here uh what we're seeing as we're recording this is that in Kentucky, which is where is a good night for Democrats, yep. it seems, Andy Bashir seems to have defeated uh the re- incumbent Republican governor, right. Matt Bevan. Uh that Bevan is refusing to concede. He's right. pushing for a recount. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't it's not clear where that will go. Right. Right. Is that maybe a preview of what we might have in the year ahead too? I mean, do you worry about
1: I do. And you worry about what would happen if Trump I would lose? Um, I, I worry, I, I will hear more generally. I worry about what President Trump does when his back's against the wall. When evidence comes out on impeachment that's unfavorable. Um, could he sack a lot of people? Could he engage in new cruel acts against, you know, kicking minorities around to, t- to shift attention? Could he, get, could he blunder us into a war we shouldn't be in? I mean, I think there's a lot... That's unpredictable right now. What? Do you worry about what
0: happens if he's acquitted by the Senate, which seems like barring some changes of what we were just talking about, if the House does vote to impeach him, which looks like it's going right. to happen. I mean, making predictions is a yeah. very dangerous thing, but right. the likeliest scenario right now seems to be that the House will vote to impeach him. I think that will go the to the Senate wisdom, and and, the wisdom, and, uh,
1: you're right. and he would be acquitted. I, I just worry about he is generally a person who is very unpredictable. He cares about one thing himself. And if he feels threatened, then he will do things to help himself at the expense of everybody else, including the nation. And so that could assume so many different forms. That is the that is the one thing that kind of keeps me up at night is, is there's a lot of unpredictability right now. You know, there's unpredictability about the impeachment in the House and what new evidence will come out. The politics of impeachment is unpredictable. But the unpredictability that worries me is what President Trump does when he feels threatened because he is going to, preserve himself even if it it messes up the country
0: and if he were to lose do you think about what would happen then
1: i don't i don't jump and think about like well what would he do and what would we do and how would you move around the chessboard in case but i just worry about his um again he will he will promote himself at the expense of every person and every principal uh including you know the his oath of office to Uh, uphold the constitution and do the right thing for the country and he'll put himself first and so I do worry about what forms that may take
0: but I'm jumping ahead because you're it it sounds like you're also nowhere near comfortable in the idea that Democrats would uh, have an easy race against him next year I
1: think if we assume it's going to be easy we make a big mistake so I do think the race is ours to lose we should win just like in 2018 you know it was a really interesting race because some of the factors like economic factors were pretty strong, but I, I, I gave an analysis a couple of days after I won in 2018, not really about my race, but just generally, and I said it was a it was a man shall not live by bread alone kind of election. Some of the economic signs were strong, but there was a profound unease among the American electorate about the way this president is manifesting. He is the most known American in the world. So who he is sends a signal about who we are. But what Americans said in that race with a good economy is, That's not who we are and we want to send a clear message of repudiation that don't think this is who we are as a country And we saw that same message So I think that I think the race is ours to lose we we have a a good momentum and last night Shows that but if we assume it's going to be easy. I mean look This is a guy who we already know will pull out all the stops I mean he'll try to get Ukraine to help he openly encouraged Russia to help He says that there was no election interference when there was he you know, he he will do anything To win and we have to not democrats we want to serve trump wants to win um we got to want to win you're
0: a white man who is a democrat yeah Uh, that is not statistically thanks for painting a picture for the home (laughs) audience the radio audience you know just you know make sure that we it's it's an audio (laughs) medium um can democrats get white men uh, white men who aren't younger voters to vote for them that wasn't where things were in 16 that it hasn't yeah. been where things are overall? I, I think so. I mean, look... You, I mean, how do you do that? A, a, as someone who yeah. has done that, uh, not just in the votes that you have cast yeah. yourself for Democrats, but has convinced uh, voters over the years to vote for you. Yeah. In
1: way. I mean, it's, it's presence. You know, um, Joe Manchin always says they don't care how much... They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so um, one one thing, when, when we celebrate that new people are now welcome at the table, and we have to celebrate that, we need to keep our foot on that equality pedal and keep it absolutely floored. That's the key virtue of this country. We have to acknowledge that some people, when they see new folks come to the table, they think, oh, I must be losing something. Now they're not, and that worry is usually a transitional worry. It's like, oh, well, it's actually working out okay. But we have to remember always to make our case to everybody and, uh, and sometimes you make your case to everybody, look, I, I spent a ton of time in Appalachia last year in my own race, and I still didn't do that well in Appalachia. Now people like me there. They're glad when I come, they, they're just not voting for me yet, but I'm going to keep doing it. Will they Be- ever vote for you? Yeah, oh yeah, I believe so. And I believe they're, you know, some of their kids do and will. Um, but you have to go out and really make the case, put yourself in an Appalachian voters shoes. They don't see economic opportunities in their communities that others are experiencing Northern Virginia. They turn on TV. So you're, you know, you just watch network TV. The, the shows are about, you know, wacky waitresses in New York and, you know, and big city police chiefs. They never see a representation of themselves in popular culture that's kind of like a lift you up and we want to pay attention to you so they do feel well, that was
0: part of the theory right of why roseanne was when that show came back mm-hmm. that it was the first time that there was in a long time a show that was about working class america yeah right yeah and that shows i mean now it's uh the Connors, right? right but since she uh, I, no
1: I, and apart. i and i i get it um you you live in a part of the country where your broadband access you know, is so bad, and that's like a highway and electricity now, you know, if you don't have good connectivity, then you are basically like living in a valley without electric power, or a county without roads, you know, in, in 2019, so we have an obligation to not only go make the case, but then produce, that's one of the things that I'm really proud about in Virginia, when Virginia expanded Medicaid, that hugely benefited parts of the state that never vote Democratic, Last year, Governor Northam and others did a big transportation package that was largely for Western Virginia. The Western Virginia legislators who'd been complaining about transportation for years voted against it, but it was Democrats from urban Virginia that put the votes in place to solve, to try to solve rural Virginia's transportation problem. So to anybody who says to me, Dems don't care about rural Virginia or rural America, I'd say, well, you know, actually, can I? Can I show you that we actually care more about the healthcare needs and the infrastructure needs and the education needs of rural voters than Republican legislators from those communities do? I think we got a good case to make. So you have to make it. You can't be unrealistic that having made the case in one election cycle, you know, the sun is going to part the clouds and everybody's going to immediately start voting for you. But you you just got to be present and you got to make that case.
0: I'll ask you just one more here. Yep. Uh, I, I spend a lot of my time on the campaign trail. Yep. Uh, there are so many Democrats who are running that uh, when Beto O'Rourke dropped out, that now made the Democratic field uh, equal to the previously largest f- uh, primary field ever. Interesting. And, and so that <laughs> was Republican candidates. 60. That was, wow. Exactly. So wow. so it's not like there's been a shortage of Democrats yeah. running for president. Mm-hmm. But uh, do you ever think about uh, what it would have been if you had run?
1: not really i I had this uh i do things by feel and i when i walked into the office we're in my office right now when i walked in here the day after i got back from 2016 my feeling was i think the senate is going to be incredibly important to saving this country in the next few years and and here i have this opportunity to be in a body that will be called on to save the country now will we rise to the challenge or not TBD. But I really felt like the Senate will be necessary to save this country in the next few years. I know what it is to run for president. I haven't done it, but being on the ticket. And if you do that, it's all in. So you're a little bit of an absentee. I mean, you're... You're, uh, you're, you're a lot of an absentee. You're, you're not around... Some
0: of your colleagues who are running for president yeah. have uh, just basically written off the fact that they're in the I mean, <laughs> and
1: And so when we were trying to get out of a shutdown last year, that was really important to Virginians. I was here... Working on the guts of that and the back pay bill as we're trying to decide what to do if an impeachment inquiry comes Around if I was a declared presidential candidate I would have zero ability to go to a Republican and say what's best for the country They would view me as well, you know, you're running for president. It's a partisan thing So I have this opportunity that Virginians have entrusted me with at a moment in time Where I do think the Senate is in a way is going to be sort of needed to to save the country going back to my job analogy as we're being tested and being tested to stay true to our principles, the Senate is really important in that. So I kind of felt like as long as Donald Trump is president, I have got to be right here. And that's why I ran for re-election in 2018. And I knew when I ran for re-election, I wasn't going to run and then turn right around and say, okay, now I'm running for president. I Some decided of your colleagues I, did. I needed to be here.
0: I needed to be here. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Amy I Klobuchar all did that. right
1: here. And look, presidential <laughs> candidates play a really valuable role too, because in addition to trying to be president, they're going out and articulating What's right about us? What's wrong about President Trump? That's an important thing to do. I'm glad there's 17 people doing that, but I have a role right here that I think is is important, and it's only going to get more important uh, in the next few weeks and months. And I've got to be here focused on that. All right, Senator Tim
0: Kaine. Great, thanks, thanks for Isaac. being here. Yeah, you bet. That'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is The Battle Hymn of the Republic as interpreted by John Baptiste. And if you want to support the show and all the work we do here at The Atlantic, the best way is with a subscription. Just go to theatlantic.com slash radio subscribe. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.